A wet breeze sprayed the deck of a cargo ship docked in the Philadelphia shipyard. One of its sailors, a man named Carl Meredith Allen, had a direct view onto a neighboring craft, the USS Eldridge. Allen knew the USS Eldridge was no ordinary ship. The naval destroyer was outfitted with a number of powerful generators and high-voltage cables. He believed the United States government had been conducting top-secret experiments on board the destroyer for more than a year. But he had no proof until Allen witnessed one with his own eyes. Around 5 p.m. on October 28, 1943, as the sun set, a dense green fog enveloped the USS Eldridge. It appeared to blink in and out of existence as if it were a light and someone was playing with its switch. Then, suddenly, a blinding flash of light exploded around the ship. When Alan's eyes readjusted to his surroundings, the USS Eldridge had vanished. A few minutes passed, it reappeared intact, as if nothing happened. The bodies of its occupants, on the other hand, were inexplicably fused to the metal of the ship. The soldiers' screams echoed across the Delaware River. Two of the ship's passengers never returned at all. Terrified, Alan wondered, where had the USS Eldridge traveled to? Or quite possibly, when did it travel to? Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. This is our first episode on the Philadelphia Experiment. In 1956, a man named Carlos Allende contacted ufologist Morris K. Jessup with information. He claimed to have details about a gruesome government experiment from the 1940s. For decades, Allende's accusations were dismissed as a hoax, until more witnesses came forward. This week, we'll investigate the details of Allende's claims and the controversy they inspired. We'll explore the role that Albert Einstein played in the experiment and the hand he might have had in Jessup's mysterious suicide. Finally, we'll examine the testimony of Al Balek, who claimed to be on board the USS Eldridge the day the experiment opened a hole in space-time. Next week, we'll explore a few conspiracy theories that surround the Philadelphia experiment, including one that suggests human teleportation might be possible. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. 
There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 1956, Morris K. Jessup lived a quiet life in Florida. The 56-year-old intellectual held a master's degree in astronomy. He'd studied for his Ph.D. in astrophysics, but never completed it. Jessup worked as an automobile parts salesman, but he put his degrees to use by writing books about UFOs and alien technology. His first was titled The Case for the UFO. Released in 1955, the book gained a cult following. Its text covered a diverse array of topics, from Jessup's predictions on the burgeoning space race between America and the Soviet Union, to Einstein's unified field theory. At the time Einstein started researching unified field theory in 1915, most physicists believed two forces governed our universe, electromagnetism and gravity. Einstein, however, believed there were four fundamental forces in nature, gravity and electromagnetism, which affect electrically charged particles like photons, and two more, strong interaction, which binds together protons and neutrons, and weak interaction, which causes radioactivity on particles like electrons. Einstein's unified field theory posited that a single equation governed all of these forces. The holy grail of mathematics, if you will. The one equation that ruled them all. Officially, Einstein never discovered it. But if the equation did exist, it could theoretically be used to manipulate the space-time continuum. The impossible could become possible. Humans could turn invisible teleport, or even travel through time. The prospects fascinated Morris Jessup, and in the 1950s, he believed the answer was still out there. It just hadn't been solved yet. Einstein may have died before unifying the fields of the universe, but there were plenty of brilliant minds still alive who could. Then, on January 13, 1956, 
a letter arrived in Jessup's mailbox from a Philadelphia man named Carlos Allende. Allende had read Jessup's book and wanted the ufologist to know that further exploration of unified field theory was unnecessary. According to Allende, the applications of unified field theory were already being put to use. He'd seen it with his own eyes. Back in October 1943, Allende worked as a sailor aboard a cargo ship, the SS Andrew Furuseth. It docked next to the United States Naval destroyer USS Eldridge. According to Allende, the USS Eldridge had participated in an experiment that tested the limits of unified field theory, one that would later be known as the Philadelphia Experiment. And Allende witnessed the whole thing. He saw what he called an oblate spheroidal envelop the USS Eldridge. Whatever it was, it blanketed the ship in a greenish-blue tint. As it did, the men on board appeared to turn into ghosts. Then the ship disappeared altogether, though the water it had been sitting in kept its shape as if the structure was still there, just unseen. When the ship reappeared a few minutes later, Allende heard screams of agony from the Navy men on board. Their bodies appeared to melt into the vessel's metallic structure. According to Allende, those who survived the experiment became mad as hatters. Such allegations include one survivor walking through a wall in front of his wife and child, never to be seen or heard from again. Several others were said to have spontaneously combusted. Allende relayed another story about two Philadelphia experiment survivors who vanished into thin air in the middle of a bar fight. He even claimed there was a newspaper article to corroborate the story. Unfortunately, Allende didn't mention which paper. His instructions to Jessup were erratic and vague. He told him to check the upper half of the sheet inside the paper near the rear third of the paper between 1944 and 1946 in spring or fall or winter, not summer. The directions weren't exactly helpful, but Allende finished his letter to Jessup with one final suggestion. Jessup should contact a rear admiral named Ransom Bennett, a chief of research for the Navy. Allende stated, he may offer you a job, ultimately. Jessup couldn't make heads or tails of the letter. Allende misspelled words, mispunctuated, and capitalized letters at random. And yet, something about it piqued Jessup's interest. The ufologist replied to the letter, asking Allende to provide more evidence. A few months later, Allende responded with three points. First, he had no concrete evidence. Second, the Navy would never admit any form of participation in the Philadelphia experiment, nor would they release any evidence about it. Third, there were two men alive who could validate his story. The first was Dr. Bertrand Russell. Dr. Bertrand Russell was a writer, chemist, and good friend of Albert Einstein. 
1955, he and Einstein penned the Russell-Einstein Manifesto, intended to warn the public about the dangers of nuclear weapons. So if the U.S. government was using unified field theory for warfare, it's likely he would have been opposed to it. Maybe that's how Allende and Russell met. They bonded over their mutual distaste. Of course, this is speculation. The second contact Allende sent to Jessup was Dr. Franklin Reno. Reno was a civilian employee for the Army in the 1930s and 40s. During World War II, he worked as a mathematician at the Aberdeen Proving Grounds, a U.S. Army facility 70 miles from the Philadelphia shipyard. Dr. Reno had devised calculations to increase the accuracy of aerial bomb drops. If Allende told the truth, Reno was the man who found the answers to Einstein's unified field theory. He also allegedly headed the Philadelphia experiment. Though we can't be sure, it's unlikely that Jessup ever followed up with either of Allende's sources. As far as Jessup could tell, neither man had ever worked with the Navy. Jessup found no connection between Allende and the Philadelphia experiment either. In fact, he found no record of the experiment at all. Presumably, Jessup dismissed Allende's claims due to lack of evidence. Until 1957, when Jessup received a very strange call from the Office of Naval Research, the department in charge of the Navy's top secret endeavors. They'd come into possession of a book. It had Carlos Allende's handwriting in it. Coming up, Morris K. Jessup dies under mysterious circumstances. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life, at least not the ones you're thinking of, but they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X dot com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In January 1956, ufologist Morris K. Jessup received a mysterious letter. It suggested the United States government had conducted top-secret experiments testing the applications of Einstein's unified field theory. Its author, a man named Carlos Allende, claimed to have witnessed the so-called Philadelphia experiment. 
in October 1943, a naval destroyer vanished before his eyes. Initially, Jessup dismissed Allende's claims as a hoax. Then, in 1957, the Office of Naval Research received a mysterious envelope addressed to their chief of research, Admiral N. Firth. The envelope contained a manila folder with the words, Happy Easter, scrawled across the front. The folder contained a copy of Jessup's book, The Case for the UFO. But strange notes filled the margins of the book. They were made in three different shades of ink and, judging from the handwriting, appeared to be written by three different people. The annotations also appeared to be in conversation with each other, suggesting the book was passed from one reader to the next. Only one identified themselves by name, Jemmy. To help keep track of their conversations, the Office of Naval Research named the other two participants Mr. A and Mr. B. Mr. A occasionally referred to Mr. B as his twin. All three seemed well-educated in the areas of physics, extraterrestrial life, and alien technology. Remarks made by Mr. A and Mr. B implied that they might even be alien themselves. On one page, Mr. B wrote, We are a discredited people, ages ago, ha! Yet, man wonders where we come from. Later, Mr. A says, Ours is a way of life, time proven and happy. We have nothing, own nothing, except our music and philosophy, and we are happy. They also refer to two specific alien species, LMs and SMs. At one point, all three annotators enter a conversation about which species of aliens Jessup refers to in his book. They also commented on odd storms and clouds, objects falling from the sky, strange marks and footprints, magnetic fields, gravity fields, cosmic rays. They even made reference to the Philadelphia Experiment, which may have been why the Office of Naval Research, or ONR, took the annotated copy of Jessup's book very seriously. The ONR had tried to track the package that contained Jessup's book, but the return address belonged to an abandoned farmhouse in Texas. So they called up the one name in the book that did have a confirmed identity, Morris Jessup. The author. On the phone in 1957, the ONR asked Jessup to come into their offices. They thought that he might be able to make more sense of the book than they had. Jessup agreed. Not long after they spoke, he sat down at the ONR office to examine the annotations. He recognized one set of handwriting immediately. It had the same spelling and grammatical errors as Jessup's old pen pal, Mr. A was Carlos Allende. He was sure of it. Jessup couldn't identify the other two, but he was happy to tell the ONR about the bizarre letters he'd exchanged with Carlos Allende a year earlier. After their meeting with Jessup, the ONR tried to locate Allende for questioning, but they couldn't find any trace of him. In the meantime, Jessup returned to speak with the ONR on three more occasions. What they discussed is unclear. 
At some point, the ONR brought the annotated copy of Jessup's book, along with Allende's letters, to a company called Varro Manufacturing. Varro had a private contract with the Navy, allegedly to manufacture industrial electric equipment. However, paranormal researcher Brad Steiger wrote that it's believed they were hired for, quote, secret government work. We can't speak to what secret government work entailed exactly, but we do know that Varro made digital copies of Jessup's book, The Case for the UFO, complete with typed notations. Varro then made 127 mimeographed copies of it. The 200-page manuscript was dubbed the Varro edition. The copies immediately started circulating through the Office of Naval Research. Ufologists William Moore and Charles Berlitz suggest in their book, The Philadelphia Experiment, Project Invisibility, that the manuscripts then might have spread through other military channels. Either way, we know the ONR gave Jessup three copies of the Varro edition, which may have been a mistake. In the winter of 1958, Jessup visited the New York home of biologist and fellow paranormal researcher Ivan T. Sanderson. Prior to arriving, Jessup asked Sanderson to invite four other anonymous researchers to their meeting. Behind closed doors, he shared the Varro edition with them. Apparently, he asked them to keep their knowledge hidden in case something should happen to him implying that, for whatever reason, he believed his life was in danger. By March 1959, Jessup's life had taken a turn. His wife left him. He lost a book deal. According to Jessup's friend, Dr. Manson Valentine, Valentine made several attempts to catch up with Jessup, but every time, the ufologist made an excuse. The timing just wasn't good. On one occasion, Jessup canceled plans with the doctor because he was, quote, on to something big. Around 6.45 p.m. on April 20th, 1959, John Good, an attendant for Matheson Hammock Park in Coral Gables, Florida, made his final rounds for the night. He was just about to close the gates when he spotted a white Chevy station wagon still parked in the lot. As he approached, he noticed the driver's side window was rolled down, just enough to allow a hose through. A hose that was attached to the exhaust pipe of the vehicle. Clothes and rags had been packed tightly to ensure the space around the hose was airtight. Terrified, Good opened the door to the station wagon, praying that the man inside still had a pulse. But... Morris K. Jessup was dead. As police arrived to make a last-ditch effort to revive Jessup, a doctor showed up. He hadn't been called. He had just been passing through. But Dr. Harry Reid arrived just in time to officially pronounce Jessup dead. Jessup's death was ruled a suicide. The news didn't come as a shock to his more casual acquaintances. Some said it was due to his divorce. Others claimed it was his failed book deal. A few even recalled him mentioning suicide in passing. But for those that were closest to Jessup, it didn't add up. Jessup wasn't a man who would take his own life. And if he did, he would have left a note. 
Sergeant Ted Obenchain, the officer assigned to investigate Jessup's death, thought the suicide seemed suspiciously professional. In his professional opinion, someone committing suicide by monoxide poisoning wouldn't go to such great lengths to ensure everything was airtight. It seemed like additional measures were taken to ensure he was dead. He also claimed that monoxide suicides were typically performed with an ordinary garden hose. Jessup seemed to have been taken from a washing machine. And the hose wasn't lodged into the exhaust pipe. It was wired on. Still, Obenchain couldn't find evidence for foul play. Jessup's death was ruled a suicide. His case was swiftly closed. But some theorized Jessup was killed for what he knew about the Philadelphia experiment. Someone murdered him to protect its secrets, and then went to great lengths to make it look like he'd killed himself. A former military intelligence official named Commander X, yes, Commander X, decided to dig deeper. They first contacted the Coral Gables Medical Examiner's office to try and get a copy of Jessup's autopsy report, but they learned that an autopsy was never performed. After receiving the suspicious news, the medical examiner, Dr. Joseph Davis, reached out to Commander X with his own question. He wondered if the commander had ever seen hallucinogenic drugs used as a technique to cover up a UFO investigation. Was it a non sequitur? Was it code? Commander X had no idea. For two decades after Jessup's death, the waters around the mysterious Philadelphia experiment were calm. Carlos Allende was silent until 1979, when Allende resurfaced for an interview with paranormal authors William Moore and Charles Berlitz. Somehow, Moore had gotten his hands on the letters that Allende sent to Jessup in the 50s. In one of them, Allende had written his sailor ID code. Moore was able to track and confirm the code. As it turned out, there was a man named Carl Meredith Allen, who was a registered sailor on board the SS Andrew Furuseth, the same ship that was docked next to the USS Eldridge in October 1943. Which means that though his name may have been fake, one detail of Allende's was real. And if that was true, what else might be? Coming up, an alleged survivor of the Philadelphia Experiment shares his story. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Now back to the story. In 1957, the Office of Naval Research contacted ufologist Morris K. Jessup. They had received a puzzling copy of his book in the mail. It seemed to offer information about a top-secret government project known as the Philadelphia Experiment. Two years later, Morris K. Jessup was found dead under mysterious circumstances. For two decades after Jessup's death, the man who first introduced the ufologist to the Philadelphia Experiment, Carlos Allende, remained quiet. But in 1979, Allende broke his silence in an interview with UFO researchers William Moore and Charles Berlitz. The two men confirmed that Allende had at least told the truth about one thing. He was a sailor on board the SS Andrew Furuseth on the day he claimed the Philadelphia experiment happened. After their interview with Allende, Moore and Berlitz published a book about the Philadelphia experiment. After middling success, in 1982, the British production company Thorn EMI acquired the rights to turn it into a fictional screenplay. The film was aptly titled The Philadelphia Experiment. It told the story of two sailors who participated in a 1943 experiment to turn a Navy vessel invisible to radar. The screenwriters ripped the plot straight from Allende's account, with exception of a few creative liberties. For instance, after the ship vanishes, it reappears in the Nevada desert in the year 1984. Thorne EMI and the film's director, Stuart Rothel, wanted to shoot the movie in Long Island. They chose a location outside of a government project site called Project Phoenix. It is rumored to have some connection to the Philadelphia experiment, but due to zoning restrictions, they were forced to shoot the majority of the film in Utah. But the making of the film wasn't difficult. The headaches started after it was produced. Three days before the Philadelphia experiment's nationwide release, Thorn EMI allegedly received a warning from the US government. The note read, we do not want this movie released in the United States. But Thorn EMI had already announced their release dates and distributed the film nationally. They weren't about to recall it now, so they just pretended they'd never received the letter. The film made $1.8 million in its opening weekend. It wasn't the $13.6 million that Ghostbusters grossed the month before, but it wasn't bad for a low-budget film. Apparently, it was enough to receive a second letter from the United States government. This time, they threatened to pull the film altogether if Thorne EMI didn't comply. So the production company wrote back, asking to see an official court order. And the government apparently delivered one. According to some sources, the film was banned for two years after its release. The ruling was eventually overturned, and the movie was released on VHS, where it gained a cult following. Other sources say that there is no evidence to suggest that a ban ever happened, 
or that Thorne EMI received any letters from the government. Either way, the film inspired the only living witness from aboard the USS Eldridge to tell his tale. A witness who could finally provide the full scope of what happened back in 1943. In 1990, a man named Al Balick took to the internet and proclaimed that he was one of the last living survivors of the Philadelphia experiment. Not long after, mainstream media outlets jumped on the story. Balick claimed that the Philadelphia experiment dated back to 1931, 12 years before Allende's account of the USS Eldridge. The initial goal of the Philadelphia experiment was to make objects disappear. In its earliest iterations, inventor and engineer Nikola Tesla spearheaded the project. Other members of the team included Austrian physicist Dr. Emil Kurtnauer and mathematician Dr. David Hilbert. Together, the men used Albert Einstein's unified field theory as the basis for their experiments. But in 1939, when World War II began, the goal of the Philadelphia Project became much bigger, literally. It was no longer about making small objects disappear. They wanted to render entire battleships invisible. The first real test happened in 1936. Apparently, it was a partial success, although the details are unclear. During the second test in 1940, the team applied coils and a generator to a ship in a Brooklyn naval yard, and the unmanned vessel successfully vanished and reappeared before people's eyes. The classified project was then given its official title, Project Rainbow. Al Balick and his brother Duncan both joined the Navy in the late 1930s. They were assigned to the Philadelphia Experiment in 1942. By then, the United States had entered World War II. Their military was under pressure to bring their men home safely. Theoretically, Project Rainbow could help make that happen. But they needed to perfect the technology before attempting anything if the lives of an entire crew were at stake. Nikola Tesla believed that the experiment wasn't ready to test on living subjects. He did his best to convince the Navy of the potentially lethal effects electromagnetic fields could have on the human body. But the Navy ignored his caution. In an effort to prevent a catastrophe and sabotage the experiment, Tesla detuned the project's equipment. But once the government caught wind of Tesla's defiance, they fired him and replaced him with Dr. John Van Neumann, a Hungarian mathematician and physicist who worked on the Manhattan Project. Ten months later, Nikola Tesla was found dead in his New York hotel room. Project Rainbow continued under von Neumann's supervision. He too suspected there might be a problem with transporting humans, but he couldn't help but wonder how many would be saved and if the ends justified a few casualties. As a compromise, Project Rainbow solicited volunteers, many of whom were taught protocols by Al Balick's brother, Duncan. The first manned experiments began in July of 1943. 
Balak and Duncan would be on board. They were appointed to operate the equipment from the hold below the ship's waterline. And the first test was successful for the ship. For 20 minutes, it became invisible to radar and to spectators. The men on board became extremely ill, but not sick enough to prevent further trials. But here's where Balak's account conflicts with Allende's. Balak claims that at 9 a.m. on August 12, 1943, the USS Eldridge was docked in the Philadelphia shipyard. They manned their stations, and soon they activated the equipment. For the first 60 seconds, a great mist began to envelop the ship. Moments later, the vessel lost radio contact. A strange feeling washed over Balak and Duncan. Something had gone wrong. They rushed to shut the machinery down, but the switches wouldn't budge. In an effort to save their own lives, the brothers jumped overboard. But as they dove into the water, the ship disappeared. Four hours passed before it returned to the shipyard. When it finally reappeared, it was missing equipment, and the sailors weren't just ill. Two men were fused to the bulkhead of the ship. They couldn't tell where another man's hand ended and the steel of the ship started. With no other way to save their lives, doctors amputated. Other men appeared delirious, deranged, and on the brink of insanity. It sounds remarkably similar to Allende's account, with the exception of some important details. Allende's experiment occurred on October 28, 1943, more than two months after Balak's account. But perhaps most importantly, when Balak and his brother jumped off the ship, he claimed that he and Duncan traveled to the year 2137 and back again. Bear in mind, they were off the ship by this point. Balak claimed that only he and his brother time-traveled, and Balak returned with tales of the future. And now, in the 90s, the ex-naval officer was ready to share his story. He traveled to different paranormal and UFO conventions, talking about the Philadelphia experiment. Many questioned why it took him so long to come forward. Balak's response? He'd been brainwashed to forget the experiment. But seeing the 1984 film triggered his memories. Balak's claims were so extraordinary that, naturally, they invited skepticism. Many felt he was a scam artist, piggybacking on the details of a science fiction movie. But as it turned out, there'd been secondhand accounts of people claiming the existence of the Philadelphia Experiment a decade before Balak came forward. Douglas Earl Rushford spoke of an old friend who'd become homeless as a result of the Philadelphia Experiment. His friend apparently participated in a series of failed tests in a government project called Thin Air. The friend was later discharged by the Navy. They claimed he was mentally unstable. Steve Cummings first heard of the experiment in Navy Electronics School. In a course on magnetics, his instructor told him about the Navy's attempts at turning ships invisible. 
Timothy Green Beckley was allegedly contacted by an ex-crew member of the USS Eldridge. Apparently, the anonymous source had an envelope of documents to prove it was real. Beckley met with the man who told him he'd been hospitalized for six months following the Philadelphia experiment. The Navy insisted he'd had a nervous breakdown. Officially, the ONR asserts that the Philadelphia experiment never happened. They never dabbled in invisibility or cloaking techniques. Time travel isn't yet possible. But what about the dozens of accounts that say otherwise? And there are some who say the experiment led to more unexpected results. Next week, we'll dive into the conspiracy theories surrounding the Philadelphia experiment. Conspiracy theory number one, Al Balick's testimony of time travel actually happened. The ship went to 2137, then came back, and Nikola Tesla's zero-time reference generator lent itself to the project's success. Conspiracy theory number two, the successful Philadelphia experiment led to another clandestine operation involving mind control and alien technologies called Project Phoenix. Conspiracy theory number three, an invisibility technique known as degaussing caused the ship to accidentally teleport to Norfolk, Virginia. For decades, the Philadelphia experiment has been chalked up as a hoax, an urban legend, the ramblings of lunatics. But maybe those claims were just a way to cover up a dangerous truth. Perhaps the Philadelphia experiment was the closest anyone's ever come to breaking the barriers of space and time. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of the Philadelphia Experiment. For more information on the Philadelphia Experiment, we found the Philadelphia Experiment Revelations by Commander X and the Philadelphia Experiment Project Invisibility by Charles Berlitz and William Moore helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Lori Gottlieb, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 